Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I am Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who's been dealing with drug addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for several years. I'm walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. On today's episode, I'll be talking with a friend of mine I know through the music world. Emily Jaworski-Koryeth is an adventurous mezzo-soprano who performs regularly in operas and oratorios, and she also specializes in really contemporary art music. I'll never forget the first time I heard her sing The Alto's Lament at a music conference talent show. It was so hilarious. And her voice and her personality just sparkle and shine. So in addition to her singing, she's also a music director at a Unitarian Universalist church, and she's an assistant professor of voice at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. If that weren't enough already, she's taking a deep look at how trauma affects musicians and artists and how singing can release trauma. She's an advanced student in somatic experiencing, which is an alternative method for trauma that she'll tell us about. I'm so excited to talk to Emily about the intersection of the arts, the body, and trauma. Thank you so much for being with us, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, why don't you just give us a, a quick uh, rundown of how you got to where you are right now? Sure. I feel like a lot of things kind of happen the way they're supposed to happen. And so I don't know if I would have ever <laughs> seen myself here when I was a, a teenager. I actually thought that I was going to be an English teacher. That's sort of what felt like the right the right thing. <laughs> wow, that's different. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I went to this uh, extraordinary chorus festival in my senior year of high school. And I thought, well, if music can be this fun, then that's what I want to do. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I was lucky enough that I went to a small enough school that had an extraordinary liberal arts program and a fantastic music college because I had already applied early decision. I knew I wanted to go to Susquehanna, which is in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. (laughs) Um, But it just felt like the right place for me. And then it just also happened to work out perfectly that they had this fantastic music program and I could sing in the choir and in the acapella group and be in musicals and do all kinds of things and try stuff out. So, yeah, I would say um, it's interesting to start there because I sort of just decided I wanted to sing without really knowing that much about it. I'd never had voice lessons when I decided. Really? That is an unusual (laughs) path. Yeah. And in some ways, I think it helped me a lot because Mm -hmm. it was just sort of like, whoa, I don't know. (laughs) Let's just try some stuff and see what happens. But again, luckily, I was in a place where I felt really supported and nurtured. And my teachers were all so encouraging and, you know, would talk to me about whatever I wanted to do. I've always loved writing. And I thought maybe I should be a music critic. And then I thought, no, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And so it's really been kind of twisty and turny. But the thing I love about that is I talk to my students about that all the time. When I taught high school, it was a huge deal. I used to love sitting around with my high school students and telling them that I, I started out as a music ed major and then I thought it was too hard and so I quit. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, Miss J, what? They were always so surprised to hear that. But I can still really genuinely tell my undergrads now, I still don't really know what I want to be when I grow up. And I, I do that on purpose mm-hmm. because I think so many 
high school age kids, students. I say kids in a very endearing way. I don't mean that to to me. They're my children. Yeah. Oh, sure. I call them kids too. <laughs> Everybody I teach is my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like so many high school age kids are so terrified because they think they're supposed to know. Mm-hmm. They think they're supposed to have it all figured out. Um, they don't want to scare their parents. They don't want to scare their teachers. They want to follow the right path, whatever they think that means, and take all the right classes, whatever somebody tells them mm-hmm. that is. Mm-hmm. And so I try really hard to be that other voice of, you know, I've always been able to pay my bills. Sometimes I've had jobs that are not super fulfilling. Sometimes I've had jobs that are definitely in between jobs. <laughs> and sometimes I just have had to try things and and see what I think. Um, that's just the way that that my brain works. I can't Personally, I can't really know how I feel about something until I am actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a very vivid imagination, but it it only takes me so far until I can kind of get into that reality. So it's important to me to to be really transparent about that. I'm still figuring it out. I'm doing things that feel important. Um, the trauma work is one of those things. When it started, I wasn't like, well, here's exactly how that's going to unfold. Uh-huh. It was something that I I actually encountered in an Alexander Technique class during my doctoral program. So Ah, can you explain what Alexander Technique is in a a short, you know, short little snippet? Yes. Alexander Technique. Yeah. I think the shortest way, and I'm not a certified Alexander teacher. And so some Alexander people might be like, what? That's not how I would describe it at all. But for me, it's really about kind of one of the terms that Alexander himself used was psychophysical unity, which is just this idea that the body and brain go together, Um, that the quality of our thoughts dictates the quality of our movement. We can learn to do anything we want to do with more sort of structural integrity and unity between the systems. For me, I got really interested in Alexander technique because I had so much tension in my body and I really wanted to sing well, but it hurt. <laughs> oh, okay. And Alexander Technique is used, um, I know pianists use it a lot, singers, dancers, I think. Yeah. The really cool thing is just like somatic experiencing, which I know we're going to come back to in mm-hmm. a little bit, it can kind of interface with anything you do. Anything. Okay. So yeah. So Alexander himself was an actor in oh. Tasmania and he went on this tour. He was reciting Shakespeare and he would lose his voice all the time oh. and he couldn't figure out why. So then he started this whole process of what's going on? What am I doing? Because the doctors were like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's no problem here. The problem was in the way he was using his body to do the thing he was trying to do. So yeah, there are Alexander teachers who work with swimmers, which is another one of my hobbies. There are Alexander teachers who work with equestrians and you can use Alexander technique in cooking. So anything you do with your body can be easier and more efficient when you understand your parts and how they work. Yeah, it's like an awareness, (laughs) right, of, oh, I feel tension here. And then um, your body can figure out how to work that out or however that goes. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And so in this class, you know, one of the things we we look at in Alexander Technique is, is habit change. What's my habit of movement? is that helpful or is there something different that I could choose to do? 
And my teacher at Boston University, Betsy Politan, also happens to be a somatic experiencing practitioner. So she mentioned trauma in class. And it was just one of those, my whole body was like, what? (laughs) Because I was sort of thinking, okay, well, if Alexander Technique gives us these tools to look at our habits and patterns and change them, trauma healing can help us look at the pattern figure out where it came from and then maybe move it for good yeah. so that it's not this consistent, persistent thing that we're always trying to dance with. So did you feel that your vocal problems were related to your trauma? Did you hook that together at that point or? Oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, and the thing is it really wasn't until I got into my somatic experiencing training that my body decided to let me know that I had stored up trauma. (laughs) I really thought that I was going to trauma training for other people. Other people. Yes. Isn't that how it always works? (laughs) Yes. And the thing about me is I, I have an extraordinarily sensitive nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just really um, affected by the world around me, I have depression and anxiety and migraines and panic attacks. And it really wasn't until I started the trauma training that I could see that all of those things were related. And of course, I did that thing that a lot of people do where I was like, well, I don't have trauma. My parents are really nice. And like, I love them. And like, my life is fine. I really don't have bad trauma. But the thing I learned in the training is that your body decides what's trauma. Yeah. It really doesn't happen on the brain level. Because you could have like twins growing up in the same house and they could have different levels of trauma, right? It just depends on your body and your mind and what they do with the input, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Bessel van der Kolk in his book. He, Mm -hmm. you know, your body decides what's trauma. You, you don't, your brain doesn't really get a vote. (laughs) Oh, really? It is just your body. Wow. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the really interesting things I've, I've studied a little bit of polyvagal theory. And so we talk about that in the context of somatic experiencing as well, and kind of how those things relate. But, um, Stephen Porges, who's the author of polyvagal theory talks about that, that his theory is that your body decides what's trauma and it happens so fast that your body actually tells the brain what's happening. Wow. Yeah, I wow. think that's so fascinating. Yeah. I'll put those links to those books in the notes so you don't have to go scramble and find a pencil, everybody. So, um, and are you willing to talk about your trauma on the pod? Sure. Yeah. I think, well, and the, I will say too, there is some of this that I'm still unraveling for myself. Sure. Um, a lot of this has come to light you know this personally, but just for listeners. So I, I met my beloved at the same conference where I met Beth (laughs) just a few years later. Um, we started dating in 2019 while we still lived in different States. Um, he's in Colorado and I am in Birmingham. Our pandemic miracle is that we, we knew we wanted to be together. So we got married and we got to spend the whole last year working remotely together at home. And then at the beginning of this school year, he moved back to Colorado and a lot of my stuff 
kind of came back up with this idea that I found this person and now he's leaving. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in there that's still kind of tender and still new. And I'm kind of figuring out the answers. One of the things that I learned is that when I was born, I was incompatible with my mom's blood type, which can be really severe and a huge problem. Luckily for me, I kind of came out really jaundiced and I've been talking with her a lot about mom when I, (laughs) when I was born, did this happen or this happened or this Uh happened? Because we've talked about in SE that, you know, even stuff that happens when you're in the womb Mm -hmm. can show up in your body. And we also know from epigenetics that people can carry trauma from about three generations back. Yeah. I think about that with my black students all the time. Yes. Yes. Because they, they have their own lives and they have their own experiences of being black teenagers in public school, wherever in the country that happens to be. Mm -hmm. And you and Sharon had such a beautiful conversation about this. It was just such a tiny snippet of that whole conversation where she said one of her her client's prayers was to to be significant. Significant, yes. Ooh, that just gave me the chills again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just to, mm. just to be, you know, how many, I look at my my Black male students and I think, why why do people see you as a threat? It It is mm. so heartbreaking and terrible and something that I, I cannot deny. Mm-hmm. When those students want to come into my studio and make music, whether we ever talk about it or not, I have a responsibility to know that their lives are not like mine as a middle-class educated white lady. Yeah. I, I tell them all the time, I will never understand. I want to. I know that there's a lot there. And I always tell them too, they never have to tell me any of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not there to to dig into their stuff. Yeah. But I feel like it's professionally irresponsible for me not to be aware that that is always in the room. Now, as a voice teacher, how how do your students present with their stuff? How does their trauma manifest in their lessons, for instance? Yeah, well, it's really interesting because it's different for everybody. Um, But if you think of sort of the classic fight, flight, freeze sort of symptoms, Mm -hmm. really what trauma is or at least the way I understand it through my SE training is those survival impulses get thwarted. Mm. So for whatever reason, your nervous system decides that the best thing for you to do is to shut down, but then you stay stuck in the shutdown and you can kind of never come out of that cycle. Yeah. Or you become so hypervigilant because you had a very real threat present itself and you needed that survival energy, but without the sort of appropriate integration of that experience into the whole self, we kind of get beholden to these patterns. So for some people, it's really tense shoulders and it's really difficult for them to take a full breath. Mm -hmm. And when you're teaching singers classical singing, which is fueled by air, that limitation in the breathing is going to inhibit their technical skill. And then it's also going to inhibit their expressive capability. Yeah, for sure. Kathy Kane, who's also one of my SE teachers, wrote this fantastic book called Nurturing Resilience with Stephen Terrell. And she says, you know, we don't all have to be trauma therapists. The most important thing for people who are living with trauma is that they are seen, heard, and believed. Wow. 
Oh, yeah, that that resonates. That sounds amazing. And that's that's one of the things with singers too, with with really almost all singers. We have this desire to to express, to communicate, to perform in front of people, but then we're always managing our own comfort with vulnerability. How much of myself is it really safe to show? And that's even if you don't have a, a huge history of trauma, that there's sort of like, yeah. how how authentic can I really be on stage yeah. or in my life in general, that we're all sort of wrestling with these questions and on stage, it's amplified in front of people. Oh man, so much. And singers, I think, ha- are the most vulnerable of all of the musical people, I, I think. There's no instrument to blame for any of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just your body is the whole thing. Yeah. My, my doctoral teacher at BU, or one of the things that she said that changed my life so much is she said, because I was always trying to like be really effective on stage and like be really dramatic and move around a lot and blah, blah, blah. And she was the first person to ever notice that that was actually a defense mechanism that I was being extra hammy on stage so that I didn't have to actually reveal myself. So to stand still and sing is probably really hard. Yes. Her thing was, can can you stand still and tell the truth? I know. And I I was like, I don't want to. (laughs) I know. No, that sounds horrible. (laughs) I know. But I've been learning to do that more and more. And that it's actually the most effective artistry. More than running around. The most unique thing I can do on stage is actually be the human being that I was created to be. And that's what I tell all my students. Mm. It is really scary and it takes some learning. And we have to know that we're actually safe. And this is something that I've been thinking about since you and I talked. And I'm so inspired by your honesty about your healing journey. And something you said recently about when you're more okay in yourself, Joey is more okay. Mm -hmm. And that is my biggest work as a teacher. My biggest work as a teacher is to keep healing myself. Because the more okay I can be, this is from SE as well. The nervous systems talk to each other. So I can hang up my Black Lives Matter poster. I can hang up my, you know, my pride safe space posters in my room. But if students walk into my space and their nervous system does not feel at ease, my words mean nothing. Mm. I convey safety to them from a nervous system level. Wow. That's like how dogs can tell. I know, right? Is that how they do it? Is that the same thing? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> that mm. I do not have expertise Let me ask in. ask my dog. <laughs> I know, right? But I do notice, you know, if I am having a really bad day and crying because I missed Tad, Charlie, the dog will come right over and stand on top of me and lick my face. Yeah. Our old dog used to do that. He was our therapy dog for sure. They they must sense the energy. There's something around that. I'm sure somebody's studying it somewhere. I'm sure somebody is. And I'm very grateful. And I'm also (laughs) grateful that it's not me. (laughs) We we love our dogs. I know. And we love our scientists. (laughs) Yes. All of it. It's all great. So the more centered and calm in your body and your nervous system you are, the more available you are for your students. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And the other thing I've, I've been kind of leaning into this semester, especially as you know, we're in a global freaking pandemic. 
It is so hard. Nobody knows what they're doing. And so I've also just tried to be really honest about them. I'll even start exercises in a lesson and then just say, I'm sorry, I can feel that my energy is just really flying right now. I'm going to take a breath for a second and just start again. Or like, I'm going to slow that down. Or, you know, I feel like my brain is getting really fuzzy. Can I just have a second to think about that? What good self-care you're modeling to students when you do that? Well, yeah, that's part of it too. And, and that's in the Kathy Kane book as well. You know, so you might think, oh my gosh, well, if my nervous system's all jacked up, I can't help anybody. And we start to like put all this pressure on yourself. Right. But she says, you know, we really only need to be in that Mm co-regulation like 30% of the time. Can you define co-regulation for everybody? Yeah, that's sort of like the the healthy nervous systems talking to each other. So this kind of ties into attachment theory as well, mm-hmm. which comes in in the Kathy Kane stuff. And some SE practitioners are also really well versed in in attachment theory, which is kind of how we develop as infants. You know, if you think about it, when you're a baby, all you have is your cry to let somebody know you're wet, you're hungry, you're sleepy, you're scared, and As an infant, if you cry and somebody comes to meet your need, then you kind of figure out like, okay, well, I'm not on my own and I'm safe and I can let somebody know something's wrong and I'll get some help. Mm -hmm. But when that care is inconsistent or unavailable, we sort of develop these survival adaptations to get those needs met in other ways. So that co-regulation piece is that idea that I'm in distress. Somebody comes to take care of me. They're stable and secure. And so I can kind of notice that my nervous system notices that and I can settle down because I recognize that I'm safe. Hmm. So that's one of the things that I'm trying to do in, in the studio too, is to kind of offer a stable, the state, most stable nervous system I can provide. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Given that I'm also a person. And so that's the other fine line that I'm walking with them is, you know, my students have to know about my migraines because there are days when they might see me in school, like seeming fine. And then all of a sudden they get an email that says, I'm so sorry, I'm sick and I have to go home. That um, unpredictability is really difficult and in terms of trauma healing, it, it's kind of, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound too hard on myself, but it kind of sets that work back a little bit. Because when I can be really reliable and always show up and be super consistent, always be where they think I'm going to be, there's something that conveys safety about that as well. Like that I know every Tuesday at 1145, I'll stand outside the door, she'll come in. We always start by saying hello, blah, 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 blah. And that that predictability conveys safety as well. Right. So when you have a migraine that it might trigger some sort of something in your students and then you blame yourself and get into a cycle like that? Yeah, that's the, the hard thing I'm trying to figure out is that, you know, I'm always trying to be really transparent with them about that and say, I'm, you know, but you know, when I get a migraine, it's, there's nothing I can do about it. I have to take my medicine, go to bed and just pray that it goes away. Yeah. Um, but the thing I try to remind myself when I'm beating myself up about that 
is that 30% piece that the psychologists have figured out that when I'm with them, I'm providing them the most stable nervous system that I have access to on that particular day. Okay. And when I feel a little out of sorts, I try to just be honest with them about it mm -hmm. and say, I need a second to think about that. Or I am so sorry, that email really shook me and I just <laughs> need a minute before I can really get here with uh -huh. you. I've seen on Facebook how you talk openly about depression, which is mm. becoming less stigmatized, but I think there's still a lot of work to do around around that in our culture. But I'm so proud of you for talking to your students about depression and, mm. you know, just normalizing it for people. Yeah, that was so scary when I first started. Really? Um, yeah. What, what made you oh, want to yeah. talk about it and be out about your depression? Actually, one of my high school students, when I taught high school, have you heard of the organization to write love on her arms? No, I've never heard of that. What is oh, that? Oh, yeah. It's like um, suicide prevention, mental health advocacy. Yeah. So, um, and I think they have sort of a, a mental health awareness day every year on Valentine's Day. Oh. So my student walked in with literally the word love written all over his arms. Uh -huh. And I was like, what is this? And he sent me the link. And so I okay. read about the organization. And um, I think that that particular story that lends its name to the organization, I hope I'm remembering this right, is, is about self-harm mm -hmm. and witnessing somebody who's covered in the evidence of that and wishing they could sort of replace all of that with evidence of love. Right. So somebody cutting, if people aren't familiar, kids a lot of times are cutting their arms or their other body parts to feel something, anything, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's about just releasing the things they feel on the inside. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a, it's a couple different things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that organization, that concept got you thinking about suiciding, self-harm. Yeah. And just how much it would mean for for teenagers to see somebody in quote unquote authority, you know, at that time I was teaching public school, right? <laughs> and so the next year at Valentine's Day, I wrote love in Sharpie on my forearms and nice. I got a shirt and there was a, a day of silence for victims of of suicide. And so I observed the day of silence and I taught my classes by typing into my computer and letting it talk to the students and um, letting them know why I thought it was important. And then of course, when I started teaching undergrads, undergrad artists in rural New Hampshire, Ooh. you know, a lot of them were so different from anybody that they knew and so isolated. And to be able to say to them, Yes, I've been really depressed too. And yes, I have struggled with suicidal ideation. And here's how I am now. Mm. Um, I think, you know, especially when I was a teenager growing up with depression, you know, I didn't really get help for my depression until I met Tad. Oh, wow. <laughs> my husband. Yeah. And he was like, babe, I feel like maybe you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> and honestly, I was so grateful. That's a really brave thing to say, looking back on it. Yeah, you, you could definitely get whiplash from uh, someone saying, what? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. But luckily, you know, we knew each other well enough at that point that he knew that it was a safe thing mm -hmm. to say and that I was in a place that I could hear that. Um, and he was totally right. Did you just think you were an angsty artist type, uh, you know, growing up? 
You know, the funny thing is when I was a teenager, I was just sad all the time. I did not think anxiety was part of my life until after that conversation with Tad and I went to see somebody and actually the primary diagnosis was anxiety. Interesting. Yeah, we talk about this in SE too, that it's like this kind of dual relationship between anxiety and depression. It's like slamming the gas and the brake in your car at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I have both too. And it's like, which one am I today? I don't know. It, <laughs> it right. vacillates depending on, I don't know what, I don't know if it's my own self or just whatever's happening outside of me. My body's like, woo, I got to slow down or I got to hurry up, whichever way. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, this seems like a good place to have you tell us more about somatic experiencing SE and what in the heck is it? What do you do? <laughs> what does it look like? Yeah. Well, um, somatic experiencing is the trauma healing protocol that was developed by Peter Levine. Um, if people know anything about trauma, they might be familiar with his name because he's been researching it for like 40 years or something by now. He's got a ton of books out. Um and um, as a result of that research, he started training therapists and other wellness providers in this modality that became known as somatic experiencing. Maybe my favorite way to describe it is that it takes those survival responses that we were talking about earlier and gives people the tools to integrate them into their body, into their lived experience, and basically or come to the realization that they are strong enough to hold the memory of that experience and also continue living life. I'm kind of talking about it in a very flowery metaphysical way, but <laughs> I'll give you one of my favorite exercises. Okay. Good. Um, that sounds good. Which is called most like yourself. Hmm. So, um, and this can be kind of tricky. So I'll give you a little information and then I'll give you a little disclaimer because, well, let me do the disclaimer first because if you live with depression or anxiety or chronic pain or constantly feeling isolated or alone, feeling most like yourself or the feeling, when was the last time you felt great? That feels too hard. So I sometimes say, when, when was the most recent time where you felt the least shitty? Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> or like, when was the last time that you felt slightly unhorrible? <laughs> because you have to, because if people think like being happy all the time is the goal, then they think they're irreparably broken and they can't ever be anything different. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the things I'm always trying to to look at with languaging too. It's like, you don't have to be happy all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to just decide that you're not going to kill yourself today. Today, Yeah. That's, that's a baseline. baseline. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Let's keep you alive. So what's yeah. the exercise? So the first thing we do is think about the most recent time, maybe in the last day or so, when you felt the least terrible. And it could be something really small. Could be the moment when you curl up in your bed at night or petting a dog or I'm thinking of things that happened to me recently. <laughs> but what you do once you've kind of sourced that memory and you've got something really specific that you're thinking about. Think about it as vividly as possible. I'll, I'll use the bed example because I always feel like that moment when I curl up on the squishy pillow and like a big fluffy blanket, it's like, oh, yeah. So whatever it is, you go back to that in as much sensory detail as you can. Mm -hmm. What were you wearing? What did it sound like? What did you feel? What did you notice? 
And as you bring all that into your awareness, what can you notice about yourself right now in response to that memory? So what we're doing is kind of giving people these, these tools to get inside where the stuff lives. But it's really scary and can be super overwhelming if you're like, hey, tell me something really horrible that happened to you and let's see what it feels like. It's like, no, 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 no. You go the other direction. Yes. We sometimes call this resourcing. Uh Um, And, you know, we talked about this, especially in my advanced level of training. When we think about these people with these really complex trauma histories, we don't want to go into those really difficult memories until we know that somebody has the capacity to track pleasant things. Okay. What can you notice in your body right now as you think about tucking yourself back into bed? Like for me personally, I notice that I can feel a little bit of softening in my throat. You know, I'm like a little bit anxious about talking on the podcast. And so as I think about curling up in bed, I can feel my throat kind of soften a little bit, actually feel my shoulders let go a little bit and my hips let go a little bit. I've also been practicing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So if people don't feel a lot immediately, that's okay. You just start with whatever you can notice. And then the basic gist of the exercise is then you go back a little bit further, like maybe 48 hours and find another memory Mm -hmm. and then find something else from the past week. Okay. And the idea behind that is that each time you're focusing on a different thing. So the details are different. The sensory cues are different. Mm -hmm. And you just notice what happens in your body as you notice or recall these pleasant things in, in really vivid detail. Okay. And so you're yeah. using those good memories and the sensory memories, not just like in your brain memories, but the sensory memories yes. to replace the traumatic ones? Not or... necessarily. And this is one of my favorite things about SE. We don't really need to know the trauma history. We don't even need to override the trauma history. Oh. So I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> In a good so, way. So you don't have to spend six weeks getting every detail about their trauma and what their parents did to them and all that. No. And in fact, about that. in some cases, if you require somebody to do that, they become re-traumatized That's in the retelling too. of the story. Right. Yeah. And so one of my favorite things about this modality is that it is really about choice. Mm-hmm. If you think about a person with a complex history of trauma, there have been numerous situations in their life where they felt like they had no choice. Mm-hmm. It was survive at all costs and the body finds a way to do that. And that is to be celebrated and honored. Like what a remarkable miracle that your body and your system found a way for you to survive this unimaginable thing. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one of the things that we can resource for people mm. later on down the road. So I'll, I'll use something that's maybe more common that that and hopefully not super triggering. Of course, mm-hmm. the disclaimer is if you know that you have a really difficult history with a car accident, you might want to stop this now. Okay. But if people feel safe going through with that, you know, I had a couple car accidents in quick succession in, in one year. And when I think about that accident, it's sort of like, you know, you're going 65 miles an hour in a car, something happens to you and your body is like thrown into disarray. Yeah. But one of the things we ask people when we do work on car accidents is when did you first know that you were safe? 
because presumably if you're sitting talking to somebody about trauma, you are safe now, even if your nervous system isn't quite ready to perceive that. Mm -hmm. But so kind of thinking back to the accident, when was the first time that you knew that you were safe? And for me, it was actually when my car came to like a screeching halt on the side of the road, like she had hit me. I kind of saw it coming. There was nothing I could do. And then once my car was over on the side of the road, I was like, okay, well, I'm alive. Yep. Um, But then you can track that. So, okay, try and remember that moment. What were you wearing? I had on my skinny jeans and my black tunic because I was about to head to work. (laughs) (laughs) It was a fall day. It was not too cold. I didn't have a coat on. I was standing outside. I got out of the car. That felt really important at the time. And when I think about that, about that moment of cognitively knowing I was safe, I can feel changes happening in my body. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just thinking about it. Yeah. I can get a little bit more like action of the salivary glands. My mouth feels a little bit more released and online. Hmm. And so this is what we do when, when somebody has developed the skills and is kind of on board with the process of, okay, I'm going to notice this feeling and see what happens. Then we can start to look at the difficult things. But again, you can start with the body. Like I have this chronic pain in my shoulder. It always hurts. My shoulder always hurts. Like every Thursday afternoon, I have to take a bunch of pain medicine because it just hurts. And I don't know what to do. Okay, well, if the person has been practicing those kind of interoceptive skills, let's try and spend some time with your shoulder right now. How does it feel right now? What's it doing right now? The other really interesting question is sometimes people will say, oh, it's like really painful. It feels super tight and really like hard and hot or whatever they describe. We ask people, are you okay to stay with that feeling? Because again, it's about uh-huh. choice. Uh huh. And if the person is willing to stay with the feeling, what we notice is that eventually it will shift. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. So. Is, is it like your body feels listened to? It's like, oh, you, you noticed me. Hmm. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure. You know, and this is a really interesting thing about becoming a somatic experiencing practitioner, but not being a mental health professional mm-hmm. is that. I'm really interested in the most practical applications and maybe don't always remember all the scientific details about <laughs> how they figured this out. But, you know, it's with so ma- like with so many things too, metaphorically speaking, with a little bit of awareness and attention, it gets softer. You know, I notice this with my anxiety all the time. The dread of the thing is never as bad as actually doing the thing, mm-hmm. right? It's like getting myself ready to do it and talking myself into it and all that kind of stuff. So this... This like shoulder example is a little taste of what we would do with a trauma history as well. So if somebody says, well, I got in, I'll go back to the car accident and go, well, I got in this horrible car accident and I got whiplash. And when I think about it, my neck gets super tense and tight. So then we ask if it's okay to hang out there. And if you start to pay attention to the neck, sometimes we'll notice that energy will start to soften and release itself. Or sometimes it goes the other way Mm -hmm. and it's like, well, what I really want to do is bring my shoulders up and like scream, stop (laughs) or whatever. And that's that sort of incomplete survival response because in a car accident, you don't have time to actually brace yourself and yell stop and stop the car with your bare hands. Uh uh But your body is trying to stop the car um, that's coming your way. And so 
because that impulse, everything your body wanted to do to protect you, didn't actually get to happen, that's the kind of stuck energy that's hanging out inside of you and causing your chronic neck thing or shoulder thing or whatever it is. Everybody has their things. Now, what do you do with a person, like I have this friend that, (laughs) that, I don't know, for my whole life, I... I've been trying lately because I I understand trauma and the relationship with your body and your mind and all that. I I can't feel anything under my neck. Like l- like literally it is detached. Yeah. Is yes. that happened to a lot of people or is that Yes. What do you do if someone says I don't know, I can't feel anything? Yeah, well, we can start anywhere. So sometimes I'll ask people to just wiggle their toes or wiggle their fingers. In one of the books, I think it might be Waking the Tiger, but Peter Levine actually talks about this and he has some like sort of proprioceptive exercises where you can actually like sort of tap down your arm, like use your hand and sort of tap down your arm and say to yourself, it sounds really silly, but say, this is my arm. (laughs) And so you're sort of kinesthetically, like you're touching it, you're Uh feeling it, whether you feel it or not, but you can kind of start anywhere with recognizing like, okay, here's an arm. I really don't feel anything. Mm. Um, I have one client who struggles with this big time. And and what we've been able to figure out is she can kind of perceive her head. She can perceive her feet. And then everything in the middle, we call the void. (laughs) But we've noticed with attention, the void has different characteristics. Sometimes the void is really cold and it feels scary like we don't want to be there sometimes the void feels like static on the tv screen and so you can start anywhere he also talks about maybe even using like the water in your shower and like specifically like i'm gonna put my left shoulder under the shower head and feel what water feels like on my left shoulder Mm. or i think yoga is also a really great way into this one of my Mm. other past lives is being a a yoga teacher (laughs) i did my uh, 200 hour yoga teacher training wow but i think when you're doing something with your body you can sort of recognize okay my arms are now pointing in different directions Mm -hmm. and maybe you don't have a super deep list of sensation like i said i've been practicing this a long time i'm also an artist and extraordinarily sensitive. So I get a ton of information from my body because that's also part of my job as a singer. Yeah. Feeling stuff in my body. So I've been practicing this for a long, long, long time. Wow. You can start anywhere. Oh, it's fascinating. I, I think I'm going to go look into this. Uh, I thought somatic experiencing meant somebody else was going to have their hands on me. And I was like, nope not going to happen but maybe that does happen or is it mostly inside your own body it it can happen there is a component of somatic experiencing touch work um that's actually the last piece of my training that i have to do because we've had to move modules online blah blah blah. so my last thing is i'm going to do this two-day touch training Mm -hmm. but to be honest my primary setting is in a university voice studio i don't even touch my students when i'm talking to them about singing stuff Oh, really? You don't like push their stomach in? Where's your dive? You don't just don't go Yeah, there. that is a choice I made a long time ago. And I, and I want to be clear about this because I think some teachers make a choice like that out of fear. And they think, well, I'm never going to touch my students because somebody's going to sue me. Mm. And my thing is, I'm never going to touch my students because it's more likely that they have trauma than they don't. 
Mm-hmm. I have no idea what their history is. And even if I ask somebody like some people do, oh, is it okay if I put my hands on you here? The people who are most likely to be um, triggered by that are the least likely to advocate yeah. for themselves and say, please don't touch me. Yeah, that that always works great when you're in a master class or something. And the master teacher says, can I can I take your hands here? And, and what are you supposed to say in front of the whole class? Right. No, exactly. I really prefer you don't touch me. <laughs> right. And a lot happened. of times people are doing it while they're already touching you. They're like, yeah. is it okay if I put my hands on you? And it's like, oh, what am I supposed to say about this? Yes. yes. And of course, my other soapbox thing is like, if you're a really intuitive teacher, you should be reading those things from your students anyway, because it's usually pretty clear if somebody doesn't want you to touch them. Yeah. But anyway, how did I get started on this? Oh, there are some SE practitioners who do a lot of touch work. Okay. The interesting thing is my only experiences as a client with SE touch work have been remote. Oh, isn't that interesting? I what? know. And so with my with my client with the void, I asked her recently if we could experiment with me holding her ankles on Zoom. You know, I can't touch How her ankles. <laughs> yeah. So I just kind of bring my attention to imagining that I'm holding her ankles and she imagines it too. And then we kind of track, okay, what, what does it feel like? Cause this is the, this is the other thing with trauma healing, because some of the things are so big, we're not going to go to, okay, tell me about the moment in the hospital when you lost consciousness and everything went sideways, you know, don't, we're not going to go there. We're going to go to the edge and say, when you think about that time in the hospital, what does your body do? Because if you've been practicing and if you've been doing this, you know, internal resourcing, like we talked about, I notice when I'm about to talk about specific things, something happens in my body before I even start. So again, this is the thing with, with that client, she is not ready to tell me about any of her trauma history. And I just have to keep telling her she never has to. Oh, I see. What is it like for us to just be here together? What's it like for you to think about talking about it and decide not to? Mm. What does that feel like in your body? Mm. Because ultimately, and I don't think I've said this yet, but ultimately what we're getting people to understand is we have these huge responses to horrible events, which is natural, biological, Mm -hmm. a, a miracle of survival. And we think, oh, God, this happened to me. I'm stuck here. I'm never going to get better. But what we start to notice is you made it through that thing and you're alive. Mm -hmm. You can notice those sensations in your body instead of how, how often does this happen? Like I used to do this with the headaches all the time. Mm -hmm. My head would start to hurt and I'd be like, Oh, my head hurts. And I'd like stretch and run around and drink a bunch of water and like try to do all these things. But I would never actually sit down and think, what does my head feel like right now? Mm. that at that instant of the pain signal that I would like basically start like running around like I was on fire to try and do anything but actually notice the pain Ah. you know that makes me think of people who use substances that are just grabbing whatever they're addicted to because boy is that easy instead of thinking okay what's going on what am I feeling what happened that triggered something you know there's always something underneath it, right? So, but yes. when you have an addiction, that's and that's why they're so hard to get out of. It's just like so easy to just go grab your vape pen or whatever, the bottle or whatever, food, whatever your addiction is. Right. 
Yeah. And I, I got really curious about this too. Um, when I was doing a lot of yoga and meditation, cause I would notice a lot of people who would, you know, be very brave and say, you know, I was an alcoholic for 30 years and now I found meditation. They go to like nine meditation classes a week and it's just <laughs> another kind of addiction, uh, albeit a, a much healthier yeah. thing, but it's still that same kind of level of behavior because they've not had the tools or somebody there to say, you know, you could look at this and look at the underneath yeah. thing. That that pain is so real and so big. And I never want to minimize that. I have so much respect for people who are living with, with addictions because it's so hard. Mm -hmm. Not only do you have that underlying pain, but then this other thing is designed to make you keep coming back. Yeah. And, and it makes everything else worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It makes everything else worse, except for like that one second. Yeah. I I've been, um, really examining my relationship with alcohol. And so I follow a lot of um, like sober Instagram accounts and those kinds of things. And somewhere I just saw that the, the positive brain chemicals from alcohol, they've now tracked this and they last literally 20 minutes. Wow. And then the rest of the time you're basically like in withdrawal. And the reason it's so hard to stop alcohol is because you are like addicted to it. And the only thing that makes you feel better is having it. Yes. But the feel good part only lasts for 20 minutes and then you're right back in that garbage cycle. So Tad and I talk about this a lot. And so we've made it really normal to say, God, I really want to drink right now. And then we talk about it and say, okay, what are you really feeling right now? Usually it's like, oh, I'm just really tired or like, I just worked really hard and I want to relax. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> what we are having a hard time figuring out is like, what are the replacement things? Like, what would, what would actually be relaxing, mm -hmm. but yes, it's this, it's this cycle. And, you know, we're really lucky. We're in our forties. We're adults. We have healthcare providers and health insurance and, you know, medication for things that are sort of beyond our control. And not everybody has that. So we're in a place now where we're doing that together and asking the questions together and trying to look at it bravely instead of like i really want to drink okay yeah, let's go drink yeah like a drinking buddy <laughs> right yeah, exactly because we've been that to each other yeah. too and kind of looked at each other and went this is not what we want to do yeah well that's yeah. very good of you to be doing that together that's i think pretty unusual and um and pretty admirable it's really good mm. now if somebody were to look into somatic experiencing is it like a kind of like therapy you go once a week or is it you go once and sit with that for a while or how does it usually yeah. work? Well, it depends on the practitioner. It depends on the person. Um, and again, the interesting thing about it is that there are massage therapists who are somatic experiencing practitioners. There are um, acupuncturists, there are therapists, there are social workers. It, it kind of intersects with all kinds of things. And so it can really look different depending on Oh. who you're with and, and who you're seeing. The the website for Somatic Experiencing International has a provider directory. So you can look up people in your area or people who do online sessions and kind of learn a little bit about them and the nature of their practice. Mm -hmm. For me, what I'm doing right now is when I meet somebody for trauma work, well, first we do sort of like an introductory, like a free phone call, just so we can see, how are you? <laughs> Meet me as a human being. Don't pay me any money first. Yeah, <laughs> like, just let's just meet. 
and see if your system thinks I'm safe and if this feels like something that we can do together. Mm-hmm. And then what I've developed right now is basically like a four session chunk because what we do first is what you and I talked about that resourcing. Yeah. What are the things in your life that are supportive? What are the things that you can rely on in between sessions to help you foster your growth? But it's also for me to sort of understand what level of of care does this person need? Is it somebody who's actively in the in the throes of addiction and just coming to me when they're clear like or coming to me when they're not even sober because they just are showing up for the thing? In that case, especially because I'm not a mental health provider, that is an instant referral for me. Okay. Um, because I'm just not trained to to deal with the intricacies of active yeah. addiction. But if somebody's in recovery, even if that recovery involves relapse, I'm in a place where with the skills that I have, as long as we start with resourcing, mm-hmm. what's helpful, what do you rely on, what gets you through then I usually recommend kind of that four, four session thing so that we can do some healthy stabilizing stuff first, do some deeper work in the middle two sections, and then end with what we call an integration session, which is mm-hmm. how is all this for you now? We kind of, if you think about it, like we go in and we kind of stir all this stuff up yeah, and we don't want to just leave people like, Oh, now I have a yeah. basket of snakes that I carry around all day. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> trying to do it in these little bite-sized chunks so that it's tolerable to the system. Uh-huh. You know, trauma is when the system gets completely flooded and overwhelmed. And so yeah. trauma healing needs to be really methodical and kind of in these little bites so that yeah. it doesn't just end up re-traumatizing people. Right. Yeah. Is it, uh, for SC, is it better if you come into it kind of already therapized and, you know, you've done some work on yourself and you want to just polish it up or does it work for people who have done no work on their trauma at all and just want to start somewhere? Yeah, it works either way. Um, I think, again, it depends on the practitioner. I primarily people find me through my singing stuff. And so a lot of times I'm working with singers who are just trying to sing the way they know they want to. There's some kind of block and they don't even know what it is yet. Um, So in a lot of those cases, it's just like, all right, well, let's just look at why your neck hurts all the time. And, and we just go really body-based and go from there. Sometimes if people have that experience of, of talk therapy, they're a little bit more used to reporting out to somebody else. Um, But, you know, that's the really nice thing about where I am. I don't really have like a therapeutic protocol. I can really, just like I do with voice lessons, really let it be directed by the nervous system in front of me and what it seems like that person can, can handle in the moment. Hmm. And it's kind of this dance, right? Sometimes I'll try to be doing like just resourcing and something really, uh, what I feel is neutral. And sometimes what happens is that traumatic memory just would like to present itself. Ah, (laughs) I find this happens with people sometimes too, because they've been holding something and they know that I'm a trauma person. And so as soon as we sit down, they're like, Oh, I don't know what's happening, but I'm covered in goosebumps and I'm shaking. It's like, Oh, okay. Then your body is just ready. So let's just go with that. If that's okay with you. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, you're doing such great work with your singers. I, I can't even imagine how this work will improve their singing and their life and all of it goes together. Right. Yeah. Especially for singers. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things I thought of as a high school teacher. And I really carry that philosophy with me 
still now. Um, I don't work in a conservatory. I work in a, in a state school um, with tons of first-generation college students. And mm. my, my focus is how can whatever we do here prepare them to be the fullest version of themselves, whatever they end up doing. So many people, I mean, even fabulous singers that I know with multiple arts degrees have some other job because the work is just so, you know, mm. unreliable, unsustainable, unpredictable. I don't know what word you want to use. Luckily for me, I love teaching and I was born to be a teacher. So those things go really well for me. For some people, like I know engineers, I know lawyers who sing, I know people in all kinds of fields. And that's actually normal. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the most important thing I can do for my students is to use the music, their passion, the thing they love to help them build these skills. What is it like to do something that scares you? What is it like to do something that's hard and feels like you can never do it? What is it like to be brave and tell the truth in front of people? What would you need inside yourself or outside yourself to feel like you could not just make music that way, but do life that way. Mm. Yeah. Music as a metaphor for life <laughs> happens that way. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, Emily, I remember sitting on a school bus at a conference where we were being shuttled from one venue to the next. And you were, t I didn't know you very well, but we sat down and I don't remember how it started, but you said you were looking into trauma and how it affects singers. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that was when you started your, your somatic experiencing school or something. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And I think it was right when Joy was first having trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it was a t in 2019. Mm -hmm. And who would have guessed that I would have had a podcast by now and you'd have almost finished your schooling and you can come on and tell p people about this amazing treatment. I, I think know. it's amazing. Yeah. And that's the thing. And, the, you know, not to you know, go back there again. But this is the thing I tell my students all the time. You don't have to know the outcome. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know how it's going to turn into a job or blah, 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 blah. Still now, somatic experiencing is just a part of what I do. I'm, uh -huh. I'm a university voice teacher, really. Uh -huh. That's uh -huh. what pays my bills. Yeah. And yeah. I do these other things because they feel really important to me. And, and of course, once, and as you know well, once you jump into this, you see that it's everywhere. And everybody needs this. And yes. so that's been the big remarkable thing. And why I keep talking about it is because I don't, I don't want to be the only singing teacher talking about trauma. I've, I've actually written a book about emotional intelligence in vocal instruction and how we can all learn to do a little bit better for our students mm -hmm. with a little bit of fundamental understanding of, you know, my colleague, Elisa Monti in the um, voice and trauma research group. She's a psychologist and she dropped this amazing stat on us the other day. Your next client is more likely to walk in with a history of trauma than they are to be left-handed. One, Whoa. yeah, one in five of us have a history of trauma. One in eight of us are left-handed. Wow. Yeah, I happen to be both, so I'm just super oh, Nice. <laughs> it means nothing. I just like saying Excellent. that. Excellent. <laughs> Well, you're, you're uh, extraordinary. That's all. <laughs> no, and actually the thing I try to say to people all the time is I'm just a person. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. I'm just like everybody else. I've got weird things and I'm trying to look at them and decide which are really mine and which I can let go of. And yeah. I don't think there's anything superhuman about what I'm doing. And that's why I try to be so open about it with the, the students. 
-hmm. You can be any kind of person that you want to be. You can be exactly the person that you were born to be. Mm -hmm. Um, That takes courage. It takes undoing. It takes time. I'm still in the middle of doing it. And that's, I think, why I'm so open about the depression and all that other stuff, too. I never want my students to think like, oh, well, she's the professor. She has it all figured out. Because uh, I think that's a lie we tell kids or uh, we accidentally tell kids. Yeah, that's kind of the old school model, right? The kind of imperial uh, authoritative teacher that knows everything and you better just do whatever they say. And yeah. that's kind of um, happily going away, I think, with this new generation of people that are like, no, it's it's not about above and below and it's, we're all in this together. We're all working together and learning from each other. Yeah. That's why I love the way you talk about on the, on the podcast intro that you're walking alongside Joey. Like that's mm-hmm. it. You're, you're doing, you're doing life together with these giant questions. How do we heal? How do we love each other when it's hard? How do we mm-hmm. stay present to each other when we're scared? How do we, you know, all that stuff. Nobody knows. We're all just trying as hard as we can. Yeah. And we get more and more information as we go and find helpful people to talk to. And that's all you can do. We just keep taking one step and we don't know which way that path is going to go sometimes, but you just keep going some direction. Yeah. direction. That's actually the end of one of my very favorite Rilke quotes. He says, just keep going. No feeling is final. Ah, yeah isn't that great i love that i think about that so much that yeah no feeling is final that's a good one yeah when you're feeling super super low yeah and that's one of my my newest depression tools is that when i feel absolutely horrible i can say well i felt like this before i know it will end eventually i don't know when but i know i'm not going to feel like this forever and somehow it just like lessens the grip a little bit yeah yeah. Cause like when it's happening, you're just like, well, that's it. I'm lost in the darkness forever. I'll never be anything yeah, but this. This is how it will always feel. Yeah. yeah. I totally understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been wonderful. I think that all of the things that you shared will be so helpful to our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I will definitely put in the notes how to find you. Great. And if they want to hire you as a, a voice teacher or a trauma, a somatic experiencing therapist, what do you call it? A uh, practitioner. Practitioner. Yeah. Practitioner. Uh, and I'll, I'll link to all those books that you mentioned and everything like that. And please share this podcast with anyone, you know, especially musicians, artists types would, I think, love this episode, anyone who suffers from depression or trauma and, uh, look us up on safe home podcast at, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Just Google us. We can be found everywhere. We'd love to hear from you. And we're also on Patreon. If you'd like to support us with a small monthly donation, Patreon makes it really easy. Patreon.com slash safe home. Thank you so much for helping keep this podcast commercial free. So thank you all for listening. And Emily and I want you to stay Stay safe. safe.